Coming up. We talk about everything. That's it. And the nature of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. Everything. Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a subset of what we talk about everything. Yeah. Yeah. On the Shake Ten Radio Hour. <laughs> Alright, let's do it one more time and actually talk about the guest. <laughs> no, I know, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> everything and everything else yeah there's comedy in there too awesome and we talk about all everything and comedy and everything else we talk about it with roger nygaard who has made such films as trekkies Mm -hmm. trekkies 2 electric boogaloo no sorry trekkies 2 the spotting (laughs) i think it is trekkies 2 the spotting isn't it there's babies on the cover six days in roswell um suckers American Yakuza 2, back to back. And his latest film? AKA back to back. And his latest film, The Nature of Existence. So actually, we talk about the nature of everything. Hmm. Yes, well, I think we're splitting semantic hands here, aren't we? Suddenly, I turned into a weird villain of a movie. <laughs> and there's so much of it that we need two full episodes to talk about it all. Take that podcast squared. This is even longer than I know all episodes. Hmm. What do you think of them apples, eh? Eh, podcast squared. Hmm. So tune in to find out all the answers, or better yet, all the questions you should be asking. Wait, 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 what was it? Raconteur et bon vivant. Roger Nyder. On the Shaky Town Radio Hour. Don't believe what they say. The Shaky Town Radio Hour is on the air. I'm Gene George. I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. Um, joining us today is uh, is is filmmaker and uh, bon vivant. I don't know why I said that. Are you bon vivant? Uh, I'll take that. All right. Yeah. All right. Roger Nygaard. That's me. Yeah, I see that. Um, <laughs> welcome uh, to the show. Welcome Thank to you. The show. Uh, let me explain a little bit how we got Roger on the show. What is a bon vivant, by the way? What That's I just accepted. Uh, bon vivant is someone who uh, lives life to the fullest. Someone who. Oh, that definitely applies. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Okay, that's a good goal. That Raconteur applies. would also probably be uh, be be true because you're, you're a filmmaker and you give talks about your films. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you know, public speaker and someone who. A good time propagandist. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And um, this is something I hope to cover at some point during the the interview. That's one of your fans. Take your pill. Right Take your pill. <laughs> what, 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 what antidepressants are you on? Oh, not enough. <laughs> He's high on life. Brody's high on life. Um, You're I, a natural antidepressant. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brody is the cure for depression. Brody's the panacea, frankly. I am an optimist. On the last episode uh, uh, with, with James Adomian, Gene and James got very... Uh, Depressed? 
And very optimistic about <laughs> oh, the impending apocalypse. No. Oh. And I was trying to, come on, guys, we'll evolve. <laughs> I had just seen your movie. I'm like, we'll do good. We'll, we'll come together. And they're like, no, <laughs> Mad Max, Mad Max. Which, yeah. which apocalypse are you, you know, is next? Things to, well, things just tend towards entropy. That's, that's <laughs> frankly, that's it. Things just tend towards entropy. Things, things seek, I think things eventually seek an equilibrium. And <laughs> but that doesn't explain how we're here. In general? Because uh, things tend toward complexity as well. Oh, certainly human beings do. Human society definitely does. And uh, yeah, elements. You know, there was only hydrogen and helium to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, it tended toward more complex things in a periodic True. table of many more elements. Right, right. But I think, um, I think we're... In, in the, the apocalypse discussion wise we're getting right into it yeah, <laughs> yeah no, sure but hey, that's, that's fine uh, and I think apocalypse wise though um, the, the difference is uh, we live in a society where a lot of people don't know basic skills like how to grow their own food uh-huh. you know so if something happens that cuts off the food supply to say the greater Los oh, Angeles that would be area it. yeah if you shut off electricity would... to all of the country there would be 300 million dead people in two or three months yeah totally Absolutely, and and that's that's kind of my point of, of the the entropy thing is we 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 have a society that's essentially built on on um, not even really an industrial society anymore. It's like we're we're like a service economy. Energy. We need petroleum. We need energy. Constant energy. Otherwise, uh, I mean, the carrying capacity of the Earth is like two hundred million for human beings. That's what it was for you know millennia, and now uh, we've got this false. Uh, stabilized number of, right. is growing six billion, seven billion. That's all yeah. based on energy. Yeah. Well, a couple. Of, I mean, I, 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 certainly there's there are things like um, um, the genetically engineered rice crops and things like that that you could probably grow with oxen and buckets, but you couldn't have made them without science. You know. But uh, I think we probably so maybe so maybe half a billion people we could support now. Given if we got rid of everything mechanical and industrial, optimistically say maybe a billion, <laughs> but that's a lot of oxen and buckets, mm-hmm. and we would have eaten all the oxen and buckets because we don't know how to make <laughs> either anymore. Well, the good side is that there's almost an infinite su- supply of energy coming to our planet from the sun every day. Right. All we had to do, if we made a Manhattan project for energy and built solar towers in in the, the Mojave Desert, we could power the entire country yeah. five years from now, 100% yeah. you know, from that source, if we wanted to. Yeah, and, and that's my hope, that we evolve towards stuff like that, projects like that. And I, I just I think there's too many people who are either ignorant or complacent, and they are not going to go for that. So the best you can hope for is to try and do what you can for yourself. And right. Most people are short-term thinkers. Yeah. What's going to benefit me in the short term? And and, and, and by all rights, they should be simply because that's uh, that's kind of the way we evolved. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, that fruit's ripe. I'm going to eat that. <laughs> hey, there's a tree. I'm going to hide in it for a while. <laughs> you know, it's like... and, and There's a woman who's ovulating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's, let's get going. Uh, exactly. And, and, I mean, you know, the planning part, institutional planning is relatively recent occurrence in human evolution. You know, five, eight, ten thousand years. So... So let me tell you a little bit about how we got, um, I found out about Roger and his work. Um, I am, and I'm hoping we cover this at some point during the show, I, I grew up in a religious family, if not necessarily household. Which flavor? Uh, non-denominational Christian. Mm-hmm. And uh, like the Scottsdale Bible Church was where I went 
in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, very religious grandmother still. So um, Bibleists. Yes. Um, <laughs> That's just, how generic is that? <laughs> and um, I would say over the last few years, uh, especially moving to LA, as my family feared, I've become more of a skeptic <laughs> and uh, gotten in touch with, uh, Lauren Weedman was on the show. She did a one-woman show at Steve Allen Theater, so I found out about the Center for Inquiry. Decided to start attending events there. The first event um, I attended was your a presentation of the nature of existence last at, week yeah that the, was your first oh yeah we, we popped your cherry that yeah night. totally at Exciting. the uh, monthly cafe inquiry <laughs> on wednesdays um at, at steve allen theater center for inquiry in hollywood um and yeah uh, roger showed nature of existence his newest documentary we're going to talk uh, about his whole body of work and um actually we have our first question from the audience, really? uh, future friend of the show, future guest of the show, Carrie Kruger, oh, wow. uh, who attended the movie with me. Uh-huh. Um, and I already kind of know the answer to this question, but she'd like to know when was the first thing you filmed ever and why? Uh, yeah, well, that, I can answer that definitively. When I was seven years old, you know, my, my dad bought a, well, before I was seven, but around that time, he bought the family eight millimeter uh, film camera to make home movies. And 8mm cameras use 16mm film that you'd have to shoot half of it and then go into a dark room and turn it over and shoot the other half and then you send it in for developing and they would cut it down the middle so 16 becomes 8mm and then they splice it together, there's two strands and you have a three and a half to four minute roll of movie that you can watch. So my dad made home movies right and I saw him doing that and my dad was a big fan of sci-fi movies so we'd always watch movies together my mother was a Hitchcock fan so we'd watch movies late at night and so I was a movie fan my dad left the camera shot half a roll one day turned over the roll and it was getting ready to shoot the other half and I grabbed it because mm-hmm. that's what kids do you get sure. into stuff yeah. and you, you uh, mimic what your parents do and I made a movie, and I tried to make a movie based on what I had seen on this TV show. I grew up in Minneapolis, and there was a show for uh, children called um, Casey Jones, and he would show with and he had his partner Roundhouse Rodney, and they would show little uh, cartoons and um, little rascals and um, Gumby. Nice. And Gumby was animated, and I remember they one episode they show how they animated Gumby. I was, it's called pixelation, where you move it a little bit and then shoot a frame or two and move them a little bit and shoot another frame or two. So I mimicked that and I took, I had these uh, Linus and, and uh, Charlie Brown dolls and I animated them, pixelated them through these little adventures, like tightrope walking on the edge of the couch. Nice. So uh, shot it and then kind of forgot about it. And then, you know, three weeks later, four weeks later, my dad got the mail and, and like put the film in and watch and go who shot this footage of dolls <laughs> oh I'm in trouble again and so that was the first my first movie and I found it I have it I found it in a shoebox nice. and uh, one of these days maybe I'll put it on a DVD I do like to put my classic works on the DVDs so on, on the six days or I'm sorry on the uh, nature of existence DVD I put a couple of uh, older uh, funny little videos and films I made when I was in high school. Very nice. cool. Very it's nice. funny how this is um, the second episode of our podcast, and then uh, when we were interviewed on Podcast Squared, that Gumby has come up. Oh. The, that proves there's a God arranging it things. It does. I used to think that way, actually. I really did. 
Um, but yeah. Nobody's in the zeitgeist. That's that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> he can walk in any book with his pony pal puppy too. We were asked what superpowers <laughs> we would choose on um, somebody else's podcast on Podcast Weird, and Gene chose. That's Gumby. my 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 uh, yeah. I got the ability to walk into any book like Gumby and his pony pop It was so hallucinogenic. Do you remember those? Do you remember <laughs> oh the, yeah. Do you remember the one? I don't know if you saw this episode where Gumby went into the oven where they were baking these little pies and the pies we could talk. Oh yeah 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 yeah. The one that I always remember is, oh, you ruined my arpeggio! <laughs> the little, like, kid playing the piano. And oh, it was, it was totally so creepy. Yeah, just freaky stuff. Pe- people call out HR Puffin stuff in Lidsville as being, like, weird and, <laughs> and psychedelic. but And then they were weird and psychedelic, but they were, like, pedestrianly psychedelic. This, I mean, some of Gumby's... Uh, oh, very Gumby Kafka, Kafka-esque. I mean, just weird, like... <laughs> yeah. You know, and... Dali-esque. Dali-esque, yeah, totally surrealist. <laughs> And, and, you know, I mean, like, you know, people running into walls, breaking apart into pieces, <laughs> reforming, and it's just, yeah, you think back on it now, it's like, dude, that was weird. <laughs> that was really creepy. I just didn't understand the motivation of the blockheads. Like, they were just oh, straight yeah. up thugs, right? They were just, yeah. They're, yeah, straight up. They were, they were straight up drugging. They were, they were. Hired, they were, yeah. OG. They're the guys that uh, Qaddafi's hiring right now. <laughs> totally. And uh, the governor of uh, Wisconsin right, would like right, to hire. Right. <laughs> Can't we just get Pinkertons anymore? We can buy Weezer's album Pinkerton. I bet you if you throw a couple cases of Weezer's Pinkerton album with people, that might. Why pick that when there's so many other subpar Weezer albums to waste <laughs> by throwing right. them at people? <laughs> Let's not burn bridges with reverse Cuomo. That's shall we? All right. Um, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> the Blockheads, probably. Yeah, they yeah, just. Gumby. I, just there was another show, too, called uh, The Christian Version, which was David and Goliath. Oh, David and Goliath. David and Goliath, yeah. Sure. yeah. Sure. That was another one. Yeah. That's which uh, Moral Oral. What, do you yes. know? I'm Look, not even going to try to pronounce his last name. Do you know Stamatopoulos? That's the one. Little Christian Adventures. Alex, yeah. Yeah. Alex quotes Starburns on uh, Community, <clears throat> if you were watching Community. Oh, okay. That's Dino Stamatopoulos. I've not been, but. Um, I have to boycott community because they, they they beat me out for my editing Emmy on for Curb Your Enthusiasm last season. I don't know though if you're going to get beaten out by somebody. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's Dan, the, yeah. Dan Harmon's a, a guy that I would I'd be all right with. Um, it would be crappy if it was like something like Two and a Half Men or something. We're two and a Half Men's in the zeitgeist. Yeah. yeah, more so Charlie Sheen. Yeah, but he's dragging Two and a Half Men into whatever into the zeitgeist. Yes, yeah. um, kicking and screaming. <laughs> I just really liked it. And when I was reading about your uh, early work before you were a professional, I guess your student work, whatever, um, just how you would pick an object and just shoot a whole movie around right, that object. Yeah. yeah, if you had a prop, you'd, you'd come up with a story around the prop that you had or the special effect or something unusual. Or like we build dummies. You would take clothing and you sew them together and stuff them with newspaper and get a styrofoam head and... And put a hat on it, and uh, it that evolved. Actually, we would do that and go down to drop them off the train trestle in front of cars, so people would think someone <laughs> nice. was falling off of the bridge, and people would stop. Oh no, someone's <laughs> fallen! You know, and ha ha ha. They'd always steal our dummy, and we have to keep making them because they'd be mad at us. So then we incorporate well, that think, into the movies. I think if you drop a dummy off a bridge in front of a car and they, st- <laughs> they swerve to stop, they deserve to get the dummy. That's, kind of that's kind of their salary, I think. That's, that's their paycheck. They get to take the you dummy get, home. And you get to keep the dummy. <laughs> now, Gene, when you do something like that in improv where you base... Drop a dummy off the trestle? <laughs> no, like when you base the whole premise of what you're doing, is there a name for that? I asked Gene because he's the 
one in between us who's had more improv training? Um, I don't know if there's a specific. I mean, it, it, I mean, there's the game of the scene where you figure out what's funny about the scene and, right. and heighten that or talk about that. But I don't know if there's a specific MacGuffin. I'm just wondering if if your Roger your process was. It, that was like an intentional thing where it was an exercise or if it was just kind of a Roger Corman-esque thing where it's like, here we got these sets. Much more Roger Corman-esque okay. and you just go by instinct. And most of the stories that we told in, in, in my early films were chase stories where somebody's chasing somebody. Somebody's got something that someone else wants or what you come up with a reason to chase somebody. It's like the Keystone Cops, you know, mm-hmm. Buster Keaton. It's the easiest story to tell without sound. Yeah. And you can do a lot of stunts and, yeah. and uh, Pratt Falls and, you know, we, we started doing a lot of pratfalls in high school when we went uh, and borrowed the uh, high jump high jump mats. You know, oh, right, these, right. these really cushy collection of foam mats and we'd then start jumping off the house. Like shoot yeah. people and oh, and you yeah. fall off the house, you know, 20 feet into this mat, which looked pretty spectacular yeah. for sure. eight millimeter. Oh yeah, that's grandiose, dude. That's, that's something else. That's like some Mick Foley. I don't know if you're familiar with the wrestler, Mick Foley. Mm-mm. You're familiar with some other wrestlers, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, <laughs> But Nick Foley, who is not only a professional wrestler, but a New York Times bestselling author, um, swear to God, great books too. Is it, uh, is it, did he write them or did he get, have a ghostwriter? No, he wrote them. Absolutely. That's, he wrote it he's, them? he's one of the few wrestlers who he wrote, wrote it. Them? Did I say wrote it? I think you did. You're doing the thing my wife does where you make fun of things that I say <laughs> and I don't appreciate it. Well, you're, I, I, it's, I just say it was, wrong. I thought it was ironic. I thought it was ironic that, that here I was accusing McFoley of having a ghostwriter because he's a wrestler and they were before presumably illiterate. And then you said he wrote it. Me, the English lit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, bachelors. Um, I just thought it was a Freudian slip that you were defending this guy that you, you deep down inside felt is illiterate. You said <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. He's actually famously one of the only people who has written his own right. books. Who, who hasn't had someone who wrote it a book. Exactly. Um, but yeah, he used to, that's how he became famous, was sending in films of videos of. And his book was about Rotifers, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's an expert. He took biology in college and <laughs> nice. field of expertise. Nice, nice. His little, his little slide, his little. Drop of <laughs> pond water. <laughs> they're really, you see the little hands, you know, swimming. Yeah. Oh, they're, you can watch them for hours. Yeah, they are. They're kind of awesome. <laughs> I remember the uh, I remember the uh, little science thing we did in uh, whatever it was uh, grade school. About. Sea monkeys. Not sea monkeys, but about pond life. Oh yes. With uh, I haven't thought of rotifers in years. <laughs> it's time. It's time Simon. that someone brought this to your attention. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased. I, I that I that I. I do remember them being kind of awesome. You took biology, I presume, and uh, mm-hmm. studied all the basics. Yeah. Cell mitosis. Mitosis, meiosis, and mm-hmm. cell. I had a I, um, the science teacher. I remember well, two science teachers. Um, but uh, in Detroit, in high school, I was in, took, did tenth grade in Detroit, and um, my teacher had this like weird accent, um, like. But she would say, sell vacuoles, mm. like with this complete weird over-enunciation. But, uh, it worked because you remembered it. Yeah, I remember a lot of stuff. <laughs> I got a good memory. That can be a, a blessing or a curse. It is. Both. <laughs> both. At the same time. Could you drop in the, uh, <laughs> drop in the Incredible Hulk end theme music? Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, you stayed in Minnesota to uh, do your college studies, University of Minnesota? Yes. Got through college on, on pennies, basically. You know, I literally, I think I got through college on about $6,000 in wow. you know, four years. Because I lived at my grandmother's house and 
bus to campus, rode my bike, bought used textbooks. Tuition was pretty cheap, yeah. you know, for an in-state school. And uh, But I here's my secret. I'll confess now. I took out guaranteed student loans every year. And I think I took out the maximum so that by the end of my four years, I had about $12,000 in the bank. Nice. Instead of being in debt, I mean, I was in debt. Right. But they're interest-free loans, right? So I was collecting interest myself on these mm-hmm. loans, and it was growing. And then I took that money a few years later and used that to pay for my first short, uh, low-budget um, film project. It be- basically became my thesis and, and my resume project. And nice. so I used it. I had, that was always my plan, was to have seed money. Yeah. That's pretty badass. What was good, the... It's a good idea. The, the, what was that film? The first one I made was called Warped. Oh, that's right. 27-minute yes. horror film. Yeah. Which has been released twice to home video on different compilations, ironically. Because, hmm. you know, it's... <laughs> how do you release a short film? You know, it's pretty hard. Yeah. This is about, uh, quoting from your website, three women in a remote farmhouse trying to kill each other. Right. <laughs> um... Which, As they're wont to do. <laughs> it was uh, kind of an homage to whatever happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, that genre nice. of movies. <laughs> of overly made up uh, yeah. actresses <laughs> trying to kill each other. <laughs> whatever happened to Baby Jane? Now that is a creepy movie. Yeah. That is a creepy, creepy movie. That's oh, one I of those loved them. Yeah, but they're just... They're, those are the movies that scared me more as a child than any other because it was just like they were like people they were like actual not like monsters or weird because my mom's a huge horror fan and I grew up watching you know horror movies all my you know formative years but those are the ones that like freak me out Silence of the Lambs freaks me out more than you know you know some slasher flick it was a realistic portrayal of what a human being can do to another human being which is more real than a vampire you know being afraid of a vampire really makes no sense because you know what? There are no vampires, <laughs> right? But there are sociopaths, yes, yes. Yeah, out yeah, yeah, there yeah. who will do things to you. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, stuff like that. Oh yeah, Michael Rooker. I worked with him. Yes, that was your <laughs> first one. Of your your first film, or it was my second feature, mm-hmm. an action picture. That's right, back to back. Yes, American um, Yakuza Two, aka Back to Back. AKA we blow up Bobcat. Right. <laughs> yeah, the end of the first act results in Bobcat <laughs> Goldthwait being blown to pieces. <laughs> nice. Now, how soon after graduation had you come out to LA? Uh, I packed up my little Celica and drove it over the mountains a, f- a couple of months after I graduated from college. So that was my plan from as far back as I can remember because that's where Hollywood was. Yeah. What else are you going to do? Right, 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 <laughs> right. right, right, right. <laughs> and now that- I guess you can go to Vancouver. Yeah, well, now it, it makes sense. <laughs> In those days, you know, that wasn't really going on, all the uh, runaway production. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, had you done your... Um, High Strung was the first film. Did that come before or after the TV work, specifically, I'm thinking the Monsters episode? Monsters came first. That was my first paid job. Nice. Directing an episode of a TV show called Monsters. One of my favorite episodes. You've seen it? Absolutely. You've seen Monsters? I have. I'm sure I've seen it, and I cannot remember. It's like... Because uh, uh, when, when I was growing up, I, I spent my time between here and Vegas, um, 
Vegas, this is like either we didn't have cable or cable was really crappy. So we had a local TV station that ran Tales from the Dark Side and Monsters. They must have gotten yeah. some syndicated package. We had the same company. Yeah. We made them. So you know, Laurel Productions? Yes. Yeah. Right, right. I'm sure I've seen it because I've seen all of those. But when TiVo <laughs> grabs them and I watch them, I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen this one. <laughs> and they're horrible. You'll find horrible. what's interesting about them is you'll find a lot of people who are now you know gone on to be very successful filmmakers doing the directing those sure. uh, sort of shows. I got paid a thousand dollars to direct this TV show. It was non-union and, and it was my first job, and I was thrilled. Oh yeah, because I would have done it for I, free. You know, I, I'd take a grand right now. <laughs> Someone to give, give me work like that. that yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, and they gave me a lot of freedom because you know, for a thousand bucks, you know, the low the, the budgets of the show I think were like one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, and every episode was a different monster. And I had the mutant baby monster, right, right, and uh, Julie Brown, the was not the downtown Julie Brown, right. The uh, I, sh- uh, uh, homecoming I shot queen the homecoming queen. <laughs> homecoming queen has a gun, right. She uh, was the star, and and she was friends with Kevin Nealon, who then played her husband. And we also cast David Spade as the uh, killer just before he got on SNL. Yes. And Nealon had been on SNL at this point? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it was actually, when we were casting, it was between David Spade and Rob Schneider. Oh, wow. For that part. It was kind of a toss-up because they both would have been fun. Yeah. I think Spade reads more like a killer. (laughs) (laughs) He's got those cold dead eyes. (laughs) Yeah. He was great. And and here's a little trivia. He did all the baby sounds. Oh, nice. Ah. Because he's kind of infant-like, isn't he? <laughs> he's wee. Is he a wee little man? He's a wee little man. He, he's of shorter stature. I When I worked at the <laughs> Borders in um, Phoenix, Arizona, all the borders are closing now. Uh, they announced uh, as of this taping. Not all, many of the stores. But yeah, he was in the uh, the record aisle. Or, I'm sorry, CD aisle. And uh, I just approached him and said, You need help anything? I'm good, brother. Okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, he was a nice guy. Brush with fame. Brush your thing. Good for you, Brody. Good for me. <laughs> oh, I'm giving you extra crap for that. <laughs> Do you think that it was um, harder to, or easier, coming out to L.A. in that period? Because this was uh, about 20 years ago? Yeah, in the 80s. Um, I mean, the sooner you leave, the easier it is. Because if you stay where you grow up, you're going to start putting down roots. And it's just harder and harder to pull those roots by the time you leave. Unless you live in L.A. <laughs> no, everybody's rootless. No, no, I'm saying I, I live in LA. Actually, it's You're still here. Oh. Actually, it's still it's still hard because I mean, just from my you know comedy stuff, having a family is you know it's tough. I mean, this is basically doing the show is my creative outlet right now because I got a two year old. Mm-hmm. That's you know, mom's watching the two year old right now. And, Who's the father? Do you know? I don't know. She's <laughs> she's a cute little baby, so it could be anybody. <laughs> no, um, it, no, she looks like me, so thumbs up. And she's as obstinate. She is as obstinate. <laughs> I read that uh, you know I've been reading a lot of uh, evolutionary psychology books, and that babies when they're born tend and all and generally look like the father mm-hmm. because. You know, evolutionarily, it's it's a good idea if you look like the father. To not look at the guy who's going to go, that's not my kid. Right. I'm going to go crush its skull against right. a rock. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, but and she, she and they change as they grow, but it, yeah. initially. Well, she, um, when she uh, chubs up for like a growth spurt, she looks more like me because I have a more round face. And um, uh, 
my wife's a little, you know, thinner faced. So when she goes through the growth, growth spurt, looks more like mom. Chubs up, like pop. So she's been going back, but she totally has my eyes. She's, yeah, we both have little squinty eyes. But, uh-huh. uh, Is she a comedian? Yeah. She's, <laughs> well, she's more of a dancer at this point. Uh-huh. And a singer. She's, um, you know, she's multi-talented. What kind of dancing do you do? What kind of dancing do I do? Yeah. What kind of dancing doesn't he do? <laughs> I can't dance. Ah, uh, master dancer. <laughs> I can't dance. Don't ask me. Um, no, I don't, I don't dance. Tish is the dancer. She, she, was, she did the swing dancing thing. That's another evolutionary thing. Men don't have to dance. Women yes. dance so men can choose a good mate. Mm-hmm. She's healthy. She can carry a baby. You know, so, totally. you know, women choose mates for a different reason. It's also why we're lazy. Because we, we, we lay around until we're called upon to get in a group and go hunt a mammoth, drive horses <laughs> right. off a cliff... We do that, and then we're like, bunch of horses over there, clean yeah. them up. <laughs> I'm going to go watch the we just drove. Game. We just drove 5,000 horses off a cliff. Boom, we're eating for a couple weeks. <laughs> They're going to start to stink. We better start moving. Why don't you pack that stuff up, too, when you're done? Honey. You've got honey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, don't think, I, I think at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of those authors you've been reading lately? Uh, I've got a stack. Um, I can remember the titles better than the authors. They're usually like teams of authors. I just read one called... Or the one I'm reading now is called Why Do... Beautiful people have more daughters. I read one called... Uh, that explains why we have a daughter. <laughs> Sperm Wars. Okay. Which is about um, how natural selection occurs on a micro level as well as a macro level and okay. that men have uh, multiple types of sperm. You know, like If you ejaculate, it's not just one type of sperm. Mm-hmm. It's many types and, and they serve different functions. There's soldiers, blockers, and, and the ones that can actually... Cause uh, the uh, impregnation. Yeah, right. Um, it sounds like ants. fertilization or bees. Right. Yeah. So that you're 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 unleashing Could an army. Ant bees. <laughs> but that's so that your your sperm, in case it has to encounter another man's sperm on the field of battle. And we sure. all know that's going to happen. And apparently, evolution knows it happens. No, it does. And, and has prepared you for it. Any episode of Jerry Springer will tell you this is a <laughs> common occurrence. Yeah. <laughs> I just read um, Greg Graffin's uh, Anarchy Evolution, and he's was singer bad. Re- he's a singer bad religion, so it was part punk autobiography, part evolutionary theory, and um, reading a lot of Martin Gardner lately. I don't know if you're uh, no. a fan. Martin Gardner was one of the uh, the the early like polymath skeptics who um, he wrote a lot of books that talked about logic and math and. Um, I'm trying to think of like some of his more famous stuff. Uh, he did the AHA books for children, where it was like a lot of logic puzzles and things oh, like that. Well, I love that. those. They're rotoscoped, right? <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of the video for AHAs. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> whole different thing. Whole different thing. Um, yeah, I've been reading a lot of that stuff too lately, though. That's, that's why it's I fascinating. That. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of people do what they do. If you want to understand yeah. people, you, you know, it's good if you learn what makes people tick. It's going to be good for you in business. It's going to be good for you in your social life. It's going to be good for you in, in every aspect of your life if you have an idea of what motivates people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's something that you studied when you did the movie Trekkies, as well as Trekkies 2. You were studying the motivation yeah. of Star, uh, Star Trek fans. I've been accused of, of being a closet anthropologist yeah. in my documentaries, which in hindsight, I, I guess it's a label that's accurate, I just set out to make as entertaining a film as possible, and it turns out Trekkies is about a subculture of humanity that happens to love a TV show, and so uh, we portray, did a portrayal, a portrait of them mm-hmm. that um, 
is, is intended to show you how they are without commenting on it as a filmmaker, at least not overtly. A neutral point of view. Yeah. yeah. You know, un, fairly, un, relatively unbiased. I mean, there's different types of documentaries, obviously. I'm a big fan of Michael Moore films and what he does. He's a master at what he does. But he has a point of view and he advances it. Ed- editorial it. is probably a, a mild way of putting it. Yeah, and well, the less mild way is propaganda for a particular <laughs> side or team or point of view. And I'm more interested than not so not so interested in propaganda as humanity. Why do people do what they do? And just looking for the truth. And the truth is usually not pretty. It's not the way we want things to be. Oftentimes, so we create narratives that feel better and explain things. But back to Trekkies. The uh, Star Trek fans, it turns out, are almost can almost qualify as a religion in a sense because one definition of a religion is that it's a code for behavior, provides a philosophy for living, and this TV show provides a philosophy. You know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations, and the Prime Directive, and everybody having a fair share in the future, uh, men and women, people with disabilities, etc. And diff- what makes it different from all other science fiction maybe most other science fiction, is that it portrays a positive, hopeful future where human beings are going forward, they're boldly exploring, and things are getting better instead of worse, whereas most science fiction shows a decaying and decrepit future. Exactly. Which, to... People like positive, hopeful... I'm thinking... Road Warrior was positive and hopeful. Yeah. We still had cars. We still, even though there were cannibal biker gangs roaming the wasteland, we still managed to have hot muscle cars. The eye of the Come beholder. On. <laughs> Come on. But there was a gyrocopter. Oh, that was and, cool. And he got the girl at the end. Still haven't seen him. You still haven't? That's right. Oh, I hate you so The first much. one, Mad Max is the one to see just for yeah. the first 25 minutes. The okay. opening car chase is among the greatest car chases filmed in, in film history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will not lie. One of the reasons why I got the GTO is because it's the it's the version of the Holden Monero. The Knight Rider. The Knight Rider. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm a rocker. I'm a roller. I'm an out of controller. <laughs> yeah. It's the Holden Monero. That's what he drives. Vashti Bunyan is an English folk musician. In 1964, she recorded a studio demo, and this song, Don't Believe What They Say, is part of that session. A year later, she would release the single, Some Things Just Stick In Your Mind. That song was originally popularized by Dick and Dee Dee, an American duo, and was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. It was actually the Rolling Stones manager who discovered Vashti Bunyan. In 2007, a compilation called Something's Just Stick In Your Mind was released with all her singles and demos, including an alternate version of Don't Believe What They Say recorded in 1966 entitled Don't Believe, and I'll play that song for you at the end of this episode. If you'd like to hear more of Ashley Bunyan, go to her official website, anotherday.co.uk or her MySpace at myspace.com slash officially Vashti Bunyan V-A-S-H-T-I B-U-N-Y-A-N You can find us on the internet at shakytownradio.com You can Twitter us at at shakytownradio You can like us on Facebook at our Facebook page facebook.com slash shakytownradio Send us an email at shakytownradio at gmail.com or call us on the Shakytown Radio hotline at 626-66-SHAKE, that's 667-4253. That's the same number. This is former Governor Jesse the Body Ventura, and you're listening to the Shaky Town Radio Hour. Or at least that's what you've been led to believe. Oh, don't.
And now let's return to mine and Jean's conversation with Roger Nygaard. So I want to find out a little bit about your journey into documentary. To do that first, we have to talk about your, um, the, I guess you'd call it narrative film or fiction. But um, we do we have to. Call them, call them make-believe talkies. It's all entertainment, you know. <laughs> I look at it as entertainment. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know about High Strung, because it was one of the early Jim Carrey movies. Um, how, and Steve Odekirk, who brought us uh, the Thumb movies oh, later, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, he directed and wrote, co-wrote Ace Ventura 2. Mm-hmm. He co-wrote Patch Adams, uh, Jimmy Neutron, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of stuff. Yeah. He, uh, I met Steve Odekirk and Jim Carrey and uh, David Spade and Rob Schneider, all these guys, when I moved out to Hollywood. My first job that I got here was working for a company that managed comedians. Nice. And the company was, the time was called Rollins, Joffe, Mora, and Bresner. And they, their big five comedians were uh, Woody Allen, David Letterman, Robin Williams, Martin Short, and uh, Billy Crystal. Nice. And they had others, but, you know, those were the... The, the, the A, the A-list. Yeah, blue chip comics. Over time, you know, that company is now called um, Mora Bresner, Steinberg, and Tannenbaum. But be that as it may, I worked there for almost five years. I started out as the, the gopher and then became an assistant to Buddy Mora and, and Larry Bresner for a little while, both. Then they promoted me to Talent Scout, and I had an office. And it was my job to go hang out at the comedy clubs and be aware of the comedians and which I did, and that's how I met all these guys. So when I moved into directing, I oftentimes would invite these people to be in my projects, of course. So uh, Steve Odekirk had written this script called Pissed and had not been able to raise the financing. So I said, hey, if I can raise the financing, how about, why don't you let me direct it? And he said, okay, and I did. I gave the script to uh, a Russian composer who had done the music for Warped, my first short film. He had found a, an investor named Serge, <laughs> another Russian, who put up the money. And we made the film for about uh, somewhere under half a million, ultimately. And we changed the title to High Strung. Steve uh, stars in it. You know, he wrote it, and he, and he also stars in the film. And, he, and Jim Carrey has a cameo in the film. Denise Crosby was in the film. We cast her as uh, the boss's wife, and that's how I met Denise, who later pitched me the idea for Trekkies. Uh, we also had uh, Janie Lane of the band Warrant oh, okay. in yeah. the film, playing a rocker, you know, who arm wrestles Steve Odekirk because <laughs> Janie's the upstairs neighbor who plays his music too loud. So Steve starts banging on the ceiling, you know, to get him to shut up. Right. So he comes down and says, what's up, dude? You know, and so they have a, an arm wrestle. If I win, you'll stop. If, if you win, you can play it as loud as you want. I won't tell you who wins. Uh, <laughs> you have to see the Spoiler film. alert. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, yeah, High Strung was uh, my first feature. It was a low-budget, one, basically one-room comedy where Steve Odekirk complains about everything in the universe. Yeah. Nice. So you went from that to working on um, Back to Back, American Yakuza 2. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, back to Back. An action picture where uh, it's kind of... I've tended to do... Everything I've done has been almost completely different from what I did before. Yeah. Because yeah. I get bored and want to try find the new challenge. Sure. So I went from a one-room comedy to a $2 million action picture. And this was something <laughs> that you had the opportunity to write. In order to get the job, I had to submit treatments, ideas, to this company that was... We're doing sequels. We're looking for uh, ideas for the sequel to this American Yakuza series. 
And so I, along with my co-writer, Scott Nimmerfro, who I had gone to college with, with we wrote the script and, and they liked our script and, and made the movie. Scott has gone on to do a lot of writing as well and, and uh, uh, most recently wrote the, on the TV show Pushing Daisies mm-hmm. and a show last season called The Gates. And uh, yeah. so, how close did you have to? How close did you have to adhere to the American Yakuza world oh. Bible? <laughs> I'll tell you the rules. In order to get the job, you had to write a story that was Yakuza, which is Japanese mafia, sure. versus Italian mafia. That's sure. that's it. That's it. Yeah. It takes place in Los Angeles. Okay. And you have to use two or three Japanese Yakuza. And they've then, in order to get the the half of the funding, or actually it was a third of the funding that came from Japan. You had to use three of their actors, oh, so sure. they could then sell it in in Japan. Fair you know, I heard that Johnny Mnemonic was made in very much the same way, where they ca- they cast Dolph Lundgren, um, Udo Kier. Um, I can't remember the Japanese actor who was prominent in that movie, um, but yeah, where you had to grab these people to make it desirable for an international market because exactly. it wasn't. Um, it's it, all for foreign sales driven. Yeah, these, yeah, these movies. Yeah. Yeah, our, our actor's name was Ryo Ishibashi, who was big in Japan at the time, and Ko Takazugi, who was his co co star, who was also, you know, had his following. You know, of course, they meant nothing, nobody really knew of them here in the States. Mm-hmm. But then we got Michael Rooker and Bobcat Goldthwait and a few other people, you know, to round out the uh, domestic cast. And, you, and part of the formula also is that you have to have five action set pieces that you tie together with your story. That's what is required of an action film. Wow. So we had, you know, a couple of car chases, a couple of shoot-ups, yeah. you know, some stuff blowing up. Maybe throw in an extra one. Maybe have six. <laughs> Give them a little more. You can't really afford it, you uh, know, and that, you, it's really, it's like you can barely afford to shoot what you've got. Mm. And so you have to be re- very parsimonious mm-hmm. with your, your set pieces. Yeah. Now, when you're presenting a, a story like that um, as part of a franchise and where you're being given this opportunity to write... What is the the push and pull as far as the studio you're working with, as far as how many rewrites they're going to try to squeeze out of you? Was that an issue with this? Oh yeah, lots of them, lots of rewrites. All serving many different masters who all had con- conflicting opinions. We had the Japanese producers, we had the American producers, and we had the the uh, American financing company. All three of them had different notes that often would conflict with each other, and I had to find a way to please everybody while at the same time doing something that I wasn't going to hate or be, mm-hmm. you know, right, right. disavow immediately. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, in Japan, all they have to do is put verses in the title and it will sell. So there they call it Yakuza versus Mafia, number three. Yakuza versus Mafia, number seven. It's like, you know, uh, Grogan versus Godzilla or whatever. Right, right. Versus sells in Japan. So that's how you can get that Japanese money. I think there's a movie called Versus. Just Versus? Yes, absolutely. I'm not, that is not a joke. Yeah, I think it's a zombie movie. A Japanese zombie movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think has it does have yakuza in it. That's probably their equivalent of snakes on a plane. Oh, maybe <laughs> Call them it, versus it, it. It could. I mean, I think it was fairly. I I have a copy of it, um, and I, I'm sure it's fairly low budget. I think it might very well be exactly that. And if they cast Samuel Jackson in it, Gene, what would it sound like? I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I'm sick and tired now. I'm not going to do something. <laughs> Somebody asked me at a screening a few weeks ago um, about, you know, because my recent film, you know, The Nature of Existence, mm-hmm. talks about people's different belief systems and whether they can, how, you know, how can we all get along? And he said, do you think we can, we'll ever be able to get along in a future without conflict? How can we stop conflict? And I said, basically, you know, dude, conflict is what we exist 
we thrive on it. Mm-hmm. Every right. movie you love is about conflict between right. people. And yeah. without conflict, you don't have a story. Yeah. That's it's inherent in human existence yeah. to have conflict. conflict. And so versus, you know, or any movie that basically embodies one entity or person versus another, that's just breaking it down to the most basic reason of what it, what it, yeah. it motivates a movie story. Right. Yeah. Tribal warfare. Exactly. And even I have a theory too that I mean every relationship is a power struggle. Whether it's you and your daughter, you know, mm-hmm. she's negotiating for more more freedom and you're trying to go the other way. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're married, you know, yes. you and your wife, constant, yes. you know, territory negotiation for who's in charge of what. <laughs> and if you're in the doghouse, sometimes the power shifts a little bit or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And your employer versus you and you versus your neighbor and right. everybody you know, there's a subtle power struggle going on. Right. Let me actually present a conflict because I wanted to cover this on the podcast Mm -hmm. and I think we have some good unique perspectives about this okay when we have guests on the podcast whether it's at uh, Studio A Eugene's house or Studio BFH my house we like to make sure that the guest is taken care of yes today part of that is a bowl full of golden Oreos that uh, so far everybody has declined to eat (laughs) there's a story behind these golden Oreos and I want to share this and get some perspectives um, what a setup. Pray share, buddy. <laughs> okay. Ever since Target was exposed for donating to candidates in Minnesota who were um, anti-gay and anti-marriage equality, I have been boycotting Target. My wife loves Target. Uh, she As was, well she should. She reluctantly went along with the boycott because the LGBT issues are important to, and equality in general is important to both of us. So she's like, I'm not going to like it, but okay. Um, they've made a deal with Lady Gaga. They have, uh, she's like, you can carry my single exclusively at Target, but you need to stop the donations to these candidates, and now you need to start doing matching donations to LGBT organizations. So boycott's over, pretty much is the consensus among those of us who are interested in the boycott. Embargo lifted. Yes. So to celebrate, I went to Target, pick up some stuff, saw the golden Oreos on sale, was happy to get them, happy to bring them home. I got these for like two bucks. The wife says, we don't eat this crap anymore. It's got hydrogenated oils, blah, blah, blah. I can't win. And I thought of this because we were talking about Food Incorporated before. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I'm just asking, what do I do? I'm desperate here. Kill her. Her in the back. Well, you have to shop somewhere where they sell things that you can eat that won't kill you right. in the long run. Right. Um, I have gone through a similar experience and 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 I'll tell you my my the advice that I was given because uh, my wife Tish goes to Porto's Bakery to buy bread and they have pain de mai there which makes really good French toast and they have a bunch of other bread and for a while there she didn't know what the pain de mai looked like it's just sandwich bread it's just white sandwich bread it's a square loaf cut regular bread <clears throat> she would come home and say they didn't have pain de mai and I would be disappointed. And I would say, oh, that sucks. What I should have said <laughs> is, thank you for looking. Thank you for going and looking. Even though right. the end result is disappointing or whatever. And this is my lesson that I learned from that. Right. Be appreciative of that effort. If you want to change behavior, always reward good behavior. Right. Don't punish bad behavior. Ignore bad behavior right. and, and reward good right. behavior. That's the formula for successful behavior modification. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that my wife needs to thank me for my efforts in bringing home the Oreos. <laughs> you also need to let go. 
<laughs> but I'm saying what I learned was 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 when somebody expends effort on your behalf, thank them for that effort, even though the results ultimately are something you really shouldn't be needing. You know? No matter how incompetent they are, if you love them, precisely. <laughs> no, because <laughs> honestly, most of the time it wasn't her fault. They just didn't have it or whatever. But I also, she also took my disappointment much greater. It was a much greater. It's just bread, you know. We have bread. We can eat the other bread we have. Uh, so, I'll be asking a little more in detail later about your thoughts about, on marriage because golden this is going to go into uh, <laughs> something that we're talking about about a future project. But um, before we leave uh, the fiction world, I want to talk about suckers, which I actually have in front of us here. Um, this is uh, with Lori Laughlin and uh, Daniel Benzali, who I remember from Murder One. That's correct. Yeah. And apparently very popular uh, cult classic along, um, amongst car salesmen. Yeah, if you want to try a funny experiment, <laughs> go to any car dealership anywhere in the country. Just, just try this and, and say to your waitress salesman comes up to you and say, Oh, by the way, have you ever seen a movie called Suckers? <laughs> and watch what they say. <laughs> I was shooting a commercial uh, last year. It was a Kia commercial. And we had to go to a Kia dealership right. in order to look at the car we were about to film in a few days. And so I told the producer, hey, just as an experiment, ask this guy who's there. So he does. Hey, have you ever seen the movie Suckers? And the, this guy says, and he's uh, he was like Armenian or something, oh yes, they make us all watch it in that room right over there. <laughs> <laughs> like they're being tortured? <laughs> well, the movie, they make us all watch it. It's, 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 we meant it as an expose. Uh-huh. How car new car dealers work their psychological tricks on uh, yeah. customers, but now it's become a training tape, a training film. Nice for car dealers, yeah. and they all watch it. And Holy crap. if I tell them who I am, they go nuts. I've got to sign autographs. The guy wanted to take pictures with me, and, and he took pictures with me and all my crew, thinking they worked on the film with me. And so everybody just went along with it. Right? Nice. I had to sign my name on his business card, and he's, "I'm going to frame this." And <laughs> it's like to, it's Holy almost crap. like uh, you know a gangster to the Godfather, right? right? It it nice. they see it as. Um, glorifying them, right? When in fact it shows them as being criminals, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Grifters, <laughs> you're just low-level grifters. Right. Yeah, that's why I use fleet sales. <laughs> no, was this a project that you um, were kind of commissioned to do, or were you able to something you pitched and brought to? A I we wrote a spec screenplay with my co-writer. His name is Joe Yanetti, and Joe is a comedian, stand-up comic. He, I don't know if you ever run uh, I've across heard, Joe. You know, his, he sounds familiar. He's from Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had sold cars for a couple years when he, his wife got pregnant. And he wanted to stay home instead of traveling a lot, and he used to tell me stories of what they did to the customers and what his boss taught him and what customers did to the salesmen. They were just mind blowing. I thought this yeah. is wild. We should write about this. So one day we finally just did. We, we started writing. And so this is based on his experiences. So it's very accurate. This is like the flip side of Repo Man. <laughs> well, it's written by people, Joe, you know, he sold cars, people who actually did sell cars. Yeah. So it's not cliches. It's the truth. This yeah, is what yeah, goes yeah, on right, behind right. the scenes at yeah. a car dealer. Well, that's what, yeah, that's like I said, it's the flip side of Repo Man because uh, the co-writer of Repo Man has uh, worked in Repo. Which, I'll give you an example. You know, here's one thing that's in the movie, and this is one thing that Joe's boss taught him. The first thing you do, or one of the things you do, is when you have a, a customer, you get them. You want them to take a test drive. Mm-hmm. 
because then they start taking ownership. And before they sit in there, you, you move the rear view mirror, you move the seat back and, yeah. so that they have to adjust it all to, to themselves. It's because it, it starts making them feel like they're taking ownership of something. And then as they're driving, you know, you, 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 you ask them questions that all end in a yes. Do you like vacations? Yeah. I do love you, vacations. Yeah. Do you like young children? You know, whatever. <laughs> whatever you, do you like Oreos? Golden Oreos. Yeah. yeah. So simple <laughs> yes questions. You get them in the habit right. of saying yes. Right. So their brain starts getting trained to mm-hmm. say yes, mm-hmm. yes. So by the time you say, do you want to buy this car? Yeah. They go, yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, 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 wait. And then, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's too late. They, go well, your life they go, well, I don't, I don't know. I say, well, at what price would you buy this car? Name your price. And it's, so if it's a $30,000 car and they say, I don't know, $15,000, you say, if I could get you this car for $15,000 today, would you buy it? Yes. Of course, of course you would because it would be half price, right? Right. So when they say that, yes, you say, Great. Follow me. <laughs> and then you turn and you walk into the dealership and you don't look back because this is what Joe's boss would say, you know, they're like dogs. They will follow you. What does a dog do if you stop and turn around? It stops. Don't stop. Walk all the way inside and sit down at your desk and wait for them. They will follow you in and sit down because it's human nature. They're not going to mill around. They, they yeah. feel awkward yeah, yeah. and they don't want you to feel bad. Right. So now you've got them in your office, which they call the box, and then you can start working that, yeah. s- that psychological magic on people. Yeah, Yeah, it never works on me because I, I usually have a... The, well, frankly, the last time I went to buy a car at a dealership, I literally bought my last three or four cars through fleet sales. And our two, two cars, last two cars. We, we were going to buy one just regular dealership and I knew what I wanted... And I knew what I wanted to pay for. And it was, it was when the Durangos first came out. I was going to buy one for my wife, my ex-wife now. And um, uh, the, uh, I didn't care. She, she really wanted one. I, was, I didn't care if I was going to pay over sticker. But the, the criteria I had was I'm not putting any money down. And you can, you know, you can, you can, you can keep the inflated sticker price. But I, you know, I'm fine with that. I know I'm going to get a decent interest rate. So, you know, and I walked in and I said... And we did the test drive, and right, well, let's come and take talk, talk numbers. And I'm like, I told him, I said, flat out, I'm not putting any money down. And he did. They did the. How much can you put down? Zero. <laughs> well, no, really. How much can you put down? And I'm like, Nothing. And I pulled my wallet out. I'm like fourteen dollars, <laughs> or whatever. I had in my wallet at the time. So yeah, that's. But that's that's hilarious. Yeah. Well, they'll hilarious. write down the sticker price on a piece of paper and yeah. say, well, how close can you come to that number? As opposed to you saying. I will pay this yeah. amount, which is if you look up the invoice price and maybe give me right. a profit of two hundred fifty dollars. That way, you're begging them to come to your price yes. instead of then you beg, you know, right. you know them telling you, you know, how close can you come to my price? You yeah. want to have take the position of power and make them beg you right. to come up in price, not right. the reverse. Yeah. Well, I, I was doing the same thing. Just I just didn't care that we were going to pay their inflated sticker price. But that's just I just couldn't put any money down right that second. So. That, that was the deal, and they couldn't do that. So, well, knowledge is power. If you know oh, yeah. how people operate, yeah, totally. it comes right back to you know mm-hmm. that idea of if you understand what motivates people and how they work, you can manipulate them or or protect yourself from manipulation. Right, 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 right. So, having there's, I mean, obviously your experience in L.A. working with comedians, and a lot of them have ended up in your movies and um, in Nature of Existence. Um, there's the interview with. Um, and forgive me, I'm afraid he's Oh, right uh, my friend Stevie Ray Fromstein. Right, 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 right. Who's also a, a sitcom writer? Yes. 
stand-up comic and TV sitcom writer. Right, right, right. So you kind of keep coming back to that world. Is that a world that you feel very comfortable in because of the five years, or was it something you always... Both. You know, actually, I start out the film, The Nature of Existence, interviewing three or four of my friends mm -hmm. before I broaden the circle and start right. traveling around the country. All four of those friends are comedians. Right. Julia Sweeney what, being one of them. She's also a comedian. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Bobby Gaylor, mm -hmm. who's also a TV writer as well, and, um, and a voice on Phineas and Ferb right now. <laughs> and um, Joe Keyes, another stand-up comic, Stevie Ray Fromstein, and Jeff Bolt, mm -hmm. who's also a stand-up comic. And the reason that my stand-up comic friends got in the movie and not my non-stand-up comic friends <laughs> is because stand-up comedians are funny and they'll say and they have a point of view about the world and truth tellers. And right, exactly. And they filter the great the best comedians, I'm sure you know this, is they filter the world through their point of view mm -hmm. and share it with you yeah. and it's humorous. And they do it. They point you to truth through mm -hmm. humor. Yeah. The if best they're, comedians if they're doing truth. it right. Yeah. If they're doing it right. So yeah. that's why I opened the film with my comedian friends. That's the end of part one of our conversation with Roger Nygaard. Tune in to our next episode where we will begin part two. We talk a lot more in detail about this documentary, The Nature of Existence. And Roger even begins to quiz me on my beliefs. I'm, yeah, I'm totally searching right now. I'm trying to figure out after being a Christian for the last 30 odd years, very odd years. Uh, gotcha. Um, so how do you reconcile that? No. What does it mean now then if you've acknowledged that what's in the Bible is not true? Um, that... What conclusion do you draw? There's only four possibilities. Either there is no God, or there is a God, and that God is not paying attention to anything we're doing. Doesn't matter. Or there is a God, and that God is paying attention, but is powerless to have any effect over things. Or there is a God, and that God is powerful and wants to happen everything that's happening. If you embrace that fourth scenario, that means you have to worship a god that causes terrible things to happen to you and apparently wants those things to happen to you. Here's another wrinkle that Steve Fromstein came up with. Let's say you're minding your own business and God appeared before you and was going to set all your doubts aside by appearing before you and said, I am God. And you'd say, okay, well, prove it. He says, okay, he does something miraculous. What if this is not a god, it's just a superior being from another planet right. claiming to be a god? How are you going to fact check him? Let's take it a step further. What if that being thinks he's God, is delusional, and actually believes he's created the universe, but he hasn't? He's just one of the nutcases from some other place. Right. And it tells you, I created the universe. How are you going to fact check that delusional being's claims? And Gene leaves us with his trademark optimism. You didn't exist before, and you will not exist after you're dead. And it didn't matter to you when you weren't here, and, you know, now you're here. So it's not going to matter ultimately. So if you get hit by a bus, you're just not going to fucking care about it. That's all next week, right here on the Shaky Town Radio Hour. You say that you'll always love me, that you'll never leave me blue. Don't you know that that's all fallacy? Don't you know it's not true?
what they say.